to another episode of Fool's Daily. I am joined by a very special guest today, all the way from America. I am joined by Rob Stoddard, who is a a games designer um, for S Seven Games. Is that fair? Is that right, Rob? Uh, that that that's that's a fair statement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the uh, director of game design, but also a designer and developer as well. So, Rob, Rob wears many hats. <laughs> yeah, yes, as typical with the industry. As, as is very typical with the industry. Um, so Rob has come on the show to talk about um, Conan Savage Legends, which is a game that he's working on at the moment that is coming to Kickstarter on the 16th of July. See, get my get my mandatory plug in. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so Rob is going to talk, Rob is going to talk to us about um, Savage Legends. He's going to explain what it's all about, how how he got into games designing, all of that sort of stuff that you're used to if you've listened to these these gamer interviews before. Um, Rob's on the West Coast, but he's not a Californian, so it's okay. <laughs> we don't. Being an ex-computer programmer, you see. East Coast, West Coast computer programmers don't get on. Um, the, the, the rivalry lives on. It does. It does. Um, so, but Rob doesn't. Rob doesn't live in California, so we like him already. Um, but he has been briefed that he has to do his thirty-second intro. And when I told him this, he said to me, mm, "It's going to be difficult to boil down into thirty seconds." So, Rob, tell us your game in history. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll try and be as quick as I can. Like I said, I don't know if 30 seconds can do it justice. Uh, I've, I've basically been playing games my entire life. Uh, I grew up um, playing games, board games, entertaining myself, things of that nature. And I even was designing games as a child, but I didn't realize I was designing games. I was just trying to entertain myself. Um, with like baseball cards and things like that, I would take the, you know, in on a rainy day in Washington inside, I'd take my baseball cards, flip them over, look at the stats and, uh, you know, f- figure out a way to design a game around it. Uh, didn't realize that's what I was doing. I was just having fun. But no, I, I actually got into gaming, you know, a lot of way, very typical um, through friends, role playing. Uh, Magic the Gathering obviously came out. Uh, I started playing that. Started working at a, a local game store. Uh, shortly after that, discovered uh, Games Workshop and Warhammer, Warhammer Forty Thousand. And being an artist, also, uh, I grew up drawing and painting and, and things like that. I was instantly attracted to Workshop and miniatures and wanting to assemble and paint paint all that. So. I got really heavy into um, the tabletop scene and building armies and things of that nature. And then continued that uh, and whatnot and worked at other local game stores and such. And uh, a friend of mine that I was also working with a co-worker knew uh, Brian Snowdy, Mike McVeigh, and a few other uh, game industry veterans. And they were putting together, uh, they were starting a new company called Privateer Press. I don't know if you're familiar with them or not, yep. but um, putting together a new company. And he said, you know, um, you should come hang out with us and just talk and whatnot. And so I went and hung out with them for a little bit. We just had a, you know, kind of like a guy's night, uh, like you said, you know, kind of sitting around the pub, just chatting and stuff. And, and I actually, I, I, it came up that I was a miniatures painter and stuff. And so I, 
happened to bring some of my stuff with me because my buddy was like, oh, you should bring some of your models, show them to the guys. Uh, showed them off. And then Brian Snowdy, who's a, a wonderful artist, he's amazing. I was uh, going to say, that must be quite daunting, showing your models to Brian Snowdy and Mike McVeigh. <laughs> it was. Uh, well, the, the interesting thing is Mike wasn't there that night. So Brian actually said, hey, do you, would you mind if I actually take these? Like, because I brought a few with me. He's like, would you mind if I took these and showed them to Mike? And I was like, you want to show my models to Mike? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> right? Because anybody that knows miniatures, the name Mike McVeigh, especially back in the early 90s yep. and such, right? That's godfather painting right there in a lot of ways, right? And so my instant reaction was, yes, 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 please. Just, you know, um, and it's ironic because I had actually met with Mike a few years earlier uh, while I was painting, while he was working at Wizards of the Coast, and he had given me a few tips on how to change my style at that particular time uh, to, to work better for photography because I was using certain techniques, and he liked what I was doing, but he, he had recommendations on how I could make it look better for photography specifically. Um, and that was like three years before this. Uh, and then, so Brian took my models, showed them to Mike, and the next day he gave me a call on my cell phone. He's like, okay, so Mike wants to meet with you. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, Mike wants to, I'm like, and that's really when it hit me. I was like, wait a second. You're telling me Mike McVeigh wants to meet with me. Mike McVeigh's all of me, already met me, you know, a few years ago. Obviously, my stuff looks different now. He's not going to remember me. But, but that's that was more of the moment of Mike wants to meet me. And he's like, yeah, so if you can swing by his house. I was like, wait, Mike wants me to come to his house. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah, I am going to see the Godfather. Right. Um, and so it, that that's more of when it kind of kicked in. Because uh, I'm not. And never really have been one of the, you know, one of those fanboy types where I get overwhelmed by people. But that moment was kind of like a wow. Um, and so I went, met with Mike, talked to him. We talked about painting, showed him some stuff and whatnot. Met his wonderful wife, Allison. She's great. Uh, and and so he was like, you know, I could really use some help. We're, we're finishing up the War Machine Prime book and whatnot, and we're a little bit, you know, we have a few extra models that came in that weren't planned for, and we could really use some extra painting help. I think you'd be great to do a few figures if you had the time. Um, and I was like, yeah, I, yeah, I can totally find a way to do to paint for Mike McVeigh. Yes, I will find a way. <laughs> right? I have a full time job. I don't care. I will find a way. Uh, and so that's how I got started with Privateer was as a mini painter. And, and it was, you know, right at the beginning of the book and all this stuff. And so I, I instantly got kind of like drawn into the, the group. And while doing the painting and everything and, and putting that together and finishing that up, there was also a need for just extra hands to pack product and, and whatnot. And so uh, Matt Wilson, who was one of the other founders, they were having a packing party at their house to, to pack some of the original product and whatnot. And so I went over there, helped out with that, just hung out. And, you know, we got a bunch of starter sets put together and everything. And, and it turned out that was a really late night. Uh, I was like the last one to leave. And um, like two days later, I get another call from Brian. 
And I'm like, hey, Brian, what's going on? You know, I had already finished the models and all this stuff at that point. And he's like, so we were talking, you know, the guys and I were talking, and uh, we were wondering if you'd want to run the warehouse for us. And I was like, what? wait, what? What do you mean run the warehouse? It's like, well, you know, with with all this stuff, uh, we've got, uh, you know, inventory and whatnot, and, and we're going to have to have somebody in charge of that, putting it together, shipping it out, all that stuff. So long story short, I said yes. Um, got in to actually working for the company uh, officially that way. Um, and Privateer and War Machine blew up very quickly, and so it grew very, very fast. We moved to warehouses and all this stuff, and more responsibility came and, and whatnot. And, and eventually I was asked if I had any uh, design ideas for models, in particular like game design and whatnot, because we were putting together a new expansion and as gamers typically do you know with friends i had had all these ideas that i shot back and forth with friends uh, about the game and but when you're put on the spot all of a sudden by the actual designers you you know your mind can kind of blink and that's what happened to me actually for the first like minute uh and i was like wait wait wait, no hang on just give me a minute to come up with something i, I can't remember what i've said before but I'll, I'll come up with something new and within like two minutes i came up with um uh, the Berserker Warjack for for uh, Kador, uh, kind of off the spot. I was like, you know, they they you know, Kador needs uh, they need all the Warjacks they can find. Uh, you know, they're not used opposed to using old tech, even if it's kind of shoddy. You know, let's let's do some kind of junky, you know, like subpar Warjack. Now. And they were like, oh, okay, cool. And I was like, yeah, and it's you know, its cortex might be faulty and it might blow up occasionally or something. And that was kind of the birth of the Berserker and and how I got noticed for game design. Uh, and so I, I quickly got my foot into design that way, and uh, kept working with Jason Souls and Matt Wilson on the design uh, for expansions and, and whatnot of of new product. And then they moved me on to the design and development team. In addition to my uh, war- warehouse supervisor duties and whatnot, and it just kind of grew from there and there and there. Uh, but it all it all started like if I had to boil it down, it all started from working in a game store and a friend knowing a friend and just going and helping out and all of a sudden kind of being you know like brought into the fold. Um, and from there, it you know uh, just grew and grew, grew with the game, grew with War Machine, grew with Hordes. Eventually, left Privateer after seven years there. Uh, went on to a company called Force Present Creative, which is a design house in was in Seattle, Washington. Uh, they recently have been bought by uh, Funko, I believe, um, to be their in-house design team, uh, where I designed games for mass market. So I actually went from the hobby and specialty market uh, seven, eight years there, designing games and whatnot, and developing games into the mass market for about four or five years, designing games there, and then uh, came into the vault for uh, S7 and have, have been developing and designing, and as you've said, wearing mini hats here, uh, trying to get different games and products out to market and whatnot. So um, that was a lot longer than 30 seconds. I apologize for that. 
It's quite, it's quite all right. Now, there is a tradition when people, um, drop names on this show, as I, as, um, I am what I am want to do, um, Mm -hmm. uh, that they are rewarded with a clang. But I'm not sure, given your resume, whether, (laughs) whether talking about mentioning, for example, Mike counts as a clang or not. Um, I'm torn on that. Um, Because, you know, looking at your resume, you're about there anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's ironic. Uh, There's a lot of times I look at, like, I'll look at back at my resume or, or my list of credits and, I can't even believe the the people I've worked with um, that I've been fortunate enough to work with and for and just the sheer volume of games and products that I've been able to put out there is uh, even, you know, takes me aback occasionally. So that's very cool. So that was Rob's 30 seconds. Um, we ought to talk Conan, I suppose. Now. Yes, definitely, one hundred percent. We should talk about the real reason I'm here, yeah. which is Conan's legend. We should point. We should point out that it is the Fourth of July as we're recording. So Rob should actually be having his Independence Day holiday, but he's talking to me instead. Oh, I I, I can always talk games, <laughs> and, and it's one of those things, right? As as a designer and developer, uh, you. You work when you work, right? It's uh, it's something I've been accustomed to. Um, days off are far and few, so. Yeah. So, Conan Savage Legends. Yes. Um, as I say, as I said earlier, it's coming to Kickstarter on the sixteenth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's described in it's described. All I know about it is the press release that. <laughs> But um, I should say Justin Gibbs, who um, used to be at Weird and who we've talked about, who we've talked with um, since he left Weird, is who put me in contact with Rob. So um, that's how we, you and I are talking. Why you and I are talking? Yes. Um, yeah, just right. But all all I know about Conan Savage Legends is the press release. Mm-hmm. Um, so I shall read from the press release. Um, <laughs> It says, this fast-paced arena-style combat miniatures game will allow two to four players to take on the role of either Conan or one of the legends of Hyboria as they command their forces, search for ancient relics, and clash in glorious battle. Right, that's quite a tagline to live up to, Rob. Yeah, I know. I know it is. Um, but that is, that's that's definitely what we're going for. And... Uh, and it's it's not your fault that you don't know much about the Savage Legends, as you say. You just got the press release. Uh, part of that is by design. We wanted to, uh, we we were being somewhat tight lipped about this, uh, only showing off a few previews here and there on on our website and on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, and yeah. I've seen a very nice render of Conan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have an amazing, amazing uh, Conan sculpt right now. Um, which is is online and, and available for people to see. And I love it. I, I think it's it's pure Conan, one hundred percent. It's just great. Um, but yeah, we're you know we haven't been saying a lot because we've been so focused on putting everything together and getting getting things right. You know, we've been working very closely with Cabinet, who are the the controllers of the Conan license. I was going to say they're the people owners. who own because. Mm-hmm. I seem to remember something 
that I read about them working with Monolith as well on their mm-hmm. Conan game. That's yes. that's how I know the na- that's how I know the name. Yes. Yeah, they 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 have the license. They control the license. They own Conan basically. And so we are we are working directly with that company as well. We have access to all their assets and their their Robert E. Howard uh, historians so we can fact check uh, directions we're going with with story and with gameplay to make sure that things fit characters and and just to fact check stories and, and events and things like that. So it's 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 great to have access to that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, we we are going for a fast paced arena style combat game here because partially, right? I mean, there's a lot of adventure games out there, and adventure games are great. I love dungeon crawls and adventure and with friends, things like that. Um, but from our perspective, one of the other great things about Conan, not just sword and sorcery adventure, uh, that people love it. Conan is, you know, gladiatorial and is a very prolific fighter and combatant. And you don't always see that a lot in adventure games, right? You'll have decisions, you'll have your... You'll have your decision tree. You'll have your um, your hunting for treasure and all this kind of stuff, which is great. And then you'll have your encounters and different things. Um, but sometimes you, you sometimes you want uh, a more visceral kind of knockdown, drag out kind of experience. Um, and that's kind of what we're going for here, because you know, if you harken back to uh, Robert E. Howard novels and the, the Conan movies with uh, with Arnold and whatnot, the you know, they were pretty bloody and pretty, yep. pretty, uh, pretty gory at the time, especially. Um, and so that's that's kind of what we're going for here is that we want you to create a warband where you're going to, like you say, you either play Conan or another potential legend from Robert E. Howard's universe, whether that be uh, Thothamon or Valeria or Olmec, uh, many other legends that appear in a lot of the Robert E. Howard novels. Uh, we have access to it and we'll be putting into the game. Okay. They're, they're effectively your leader of your warband. Right. And as you, you know, know it through Conan stories and movies, you'll be choosing two companions that will accompany uh, your legend in your warband, basically. And each, each companion has abilities and powers, just like a, the legends do. They all have their own stats. They all have their own powers and abilities. And, when you're building out your warband, in some ways that's almost like a deck building kind of experience because you're looking for certain combinations. Right? Okay. It's like, oh, okay, if if I pair this legend with this companion and then this companion, it might the the combination of powers and abilities that you put together, you might be able to create a, a strategy around that, um, right? And since since Conan has access to various companions. The next time you play, you might choose two different companions to go with them and try and try a different strategy or a different tactic. Um, so it's it's got a little bit of, for lack of a better term, deck construction or deck building even before you actually start playing the game, right? So you can it's it's like army building for for yep. uh, machine or hordes or 40k or whatnot, um, but on a smaller scale because with the warbands you're typically only going to be using one legend, two companions, and then you'll have some minions that go with you, basically. And, and minions are, you know, they are minions. They're, they're kind of 
Yeah, for lack of a better term. Yeah, they're cannon fodder, whatever. You know, because, because uh, again, Conan, you're used to Conan just chopping. Yeah, he's got to hack his way through people. Guys, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So that that's the typical size of a warband, and you'll basically put that on the table against a, another warband, and and you'll have a, a kind of knockdown, drag out, a good time, hopefully, and, so- and go at it. So is it is there is it a is there a board is it a board game or is it a tabletop game? It is a board game. Uh, we're using a hex hex based um, board, so that, right. because uh, that way you don't have to. There's no measuring involved. It's, yeah. it, it helps with the pace of the game and things like that. Um, I know some people don't like hexes. Uh, I personally love hexes uh, because they they allow greater freedom of movement. Yeah. And and tactical flexibility when it comes to maneuvering, as opposed to just straight squares. Can I move diagonally? Question. Yes, yes, yeah, and that one always gets you right on a on a board with squares. It's like when you're dealing with anything adjacent. Well, is diagonal adjacent yeah, or, or not? Or a measuring line uh, of sight or yep. distance yeah. for a bow or something. Yeah. So, so it, you will have a hex board. Uh, there's obviously, uh, you know, it's going to be a wonderfully painted uh, environment, uh, double-sided, I believe. So there'll be multiple boards for different terrain and different theme environments and feelings there. So, okay. Yeah. And so is the basic premise of the game that you build a warband and then fight your opponent's warband, is, or, or is it that you are looting and pillaging, and the fighting is incidental. Which is which is the main focus? The main focus is that you'll be building your warband and then fighting an, okay. another player. Um, the looting and pillaging that that aspect is actually kind of that part is kind of taken care of ahead of time because while you're when you're building your warband, the other thing you're going to do with your legend is your legend has uh, room for four items that they basically can carry into battle right and so these are uh, if you if you imagine right these are the items that you've already acquired through other battles or other adventures that have happened before the fight you're about to go into and so you know with conan you might take and you might give him just a normal war axe and maybe a shield uh, like a wooden shield and maybe a, a bloodstained cloak or, or something like this. And all of the items, again, like the legends and companions, they have different abilities tied to them. Uh, they might improve your, uh, your capabilities of battle, or they might give you a special kind of ability, like a one time, once per round kind of thing or once per turn kind of thing that uh, lets you maybe reroll dice or reposition or do something completely different. Right. Um, and so, uh, again, that's you know that's where your experience will will change from game to game because the four items you take into battle with your, with Conan the first time might be completely different than the four you take into battle next time, and so they'll change your experience in what you do. And additionally, in our game, while you're playing, every item has the ability to be upgraded. Okay. And so items are actually double-sided. So you have a starting side, and then that has an upgrade cost. And once you've actually paid that upgrade cost, you'll flip the you'll flip the item over, and you'll have a a better, uh, more improved version of it that possibly unlocks even more abilities and effects. So so there is a little bit of not exactly looting going on during the game, 
uh, or pillaging during the game, but you are actually making use of coins in the game because coins actually are utilized. They're, they're a currency that you will draw coins every round and you'll use those coins to upgrade items or upgrade companions or even upgrade your legend to uh, unlock different abilities, different powers, or improve their abilities in battle. Okay. So, so they can basically le- they can level up during the game. Yeah, yeah. In a way, yeah, you can look at it as leveling up throughout the game, one hundred percent. Okay. Um. So, how many people am I going to manage to be crushed by at any one time? Because I'm, I am very very bad at deck building. <laughs> I go, ooh, that's shiny. And I'm going to have this shiny thing, and then my opponents mm-hmm. generally go, that shiny thing will not work with any of the other shiny things you have. And I'll go, but it's shiny! <laughs> so I, know exactly what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Um, well, honestly, the the interesting thing and in, in, in what's going to happen is there are going to be so many potential combinations out there that you're going to have a lot of options available to you and it's going to take a lot. I think it's going to take a while before people really kind of find their strategy and what suits them. And, and one of the ways I'm looking that I've been focusing on as I've been developing out the system is, and this just ties kind of back to my philosophy in design in general is I personally like players to be able to find the way they're going to enjoy the game as opposed to me telling them the way they should enjoy the game. Right. Right. Um, And and so what I mean by that is even if you're shiny things, even if you're terrible at deck building, as you say, I want you to be able to, to deck build your legend in such a way that even if it might not be the quote unquote best or the most efficient thing, what you have there is is centered around the way you enjoy playing the game. Um, and as long as you enjoy playing the game, if it's not the best thing and you get slammed, but you had a great experience, then that's, that's I've done my job, right? Yes. Because if you're walking, even if you lose and you walk away from a game with, a, with that feeling of, I, I had a good time, I enjoyed getting my butt kicked my, by my buddy, but it was a great time, that's, that's what I care about, right? Um, you know, obviously, with with games of this nature, there's probably going to be some hyper competitive people that put victory over all else. Um, there's no way to get around that, unfortunately. <laughs> it's that, that's the games industry for you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a little unfortunate at times, but it is what it is. And uh, but that's that's not what we're going for. We're not going for a system that that focuses on okay, what's the absolute best way to play this, or what's the absolute most efficient way to build Conan, what items do I want, right? Um, because there are going to be so many variables and so many options available to each legend and every player that that there are going to be so many different potential strategies that you can you can utilize. That It's going to be really interesting to see how people decide to play a particular legend, not just the game, but a particular character, right? Like, you might take Conan and play him so different than I play Conan. Right, you might you might just hard charge in with him, and because of the way I've figured out a certain combination with my items and my companions, I might play him a completely different way. Right, um, and, and that's actually one of the things that is t- excites me about it is 
I, I personally don't like one dimensional characters, right. <laughs> right? I like, I like options. I like people to be able to, to make interesting choices and interesting decisions when it comes to how they decide to play a game and what they want to actually do. So how do you play test that? I mean, how do you play test? If you've got so many variables, mm-hmm. how do you ensure that and this is not really relate. This is much more a games designer question than a, mm-hmm. a coding question specifically. How mm-hmm. do you ensure that you don't accidentally create that mega item or that uber combo that mm-hmm. when someone sees it and inevitably netlists stuff out there mm-hmm. that breaks the game for the other people and the, therefore the other people's enjoyment does disappear? Right. It's, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, I will tell you right off the bat, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, part of it comes down to experience. Uh, and luckily I've, you know, been doing, been doing development and design for the better part of 15 years now. Yeah. And again, kind of going back to my history with War Machine and Hordes, we were, we were in a very similar position there where we had very powerful combinations and all these things. And, and and so a lot of those lessons I've been able to carry forward with me and, and a lot of that experience comes down to going through it before, seeing similar aspects, and then lots and lots of testing, like lots of testing, where it basically comes down to putting together potential combinations and seeing how – you want, you intend for something to work together and then putting it in on the table and seeing how it can potentially be abused and instructing testers. Okay. I want you to abuse this thing. I, I want you to take this combination onto the, onto the table and I want you to abuse it. I want you to lean into it. Show me how, how broken it possibly can be. And a lot of that comes down to, to the actual just, okay, let's test it, let's test it, let's test it. And, and a lot of times what happens is there's, there's a test, uh, something appears to be broken. And so there's a small tweak and iteration. Okay. Let's test it again. Let's go again. Right. And it's just boom, 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 boom. Uh, and you, you kind of quick fire those at times because it's fresh in your mind and you want to get to a point where you're confident about that particular combination or ability. And once you, once you reach that point, you usually can kind of feel it and are like, okay, it's, it's, it's in a good place now. We can move on. Right. And a lot of times for me, I'll have a backup plan also. Okay. Where, where it comes to be like, okay, well, this is, it's good where it is right now, but if it's still a problem, we can do X, Y, and Z also to fix it. Right. Um, and that's just, that just comes from experience kind of situation. So, okay. So and lots of is, testing, like I said. It's where your skill is, basically where your skill as a games designer is coming in, as opposed uh, to, you know, the all the hobbyists who are sitting in their bedroom designing games going, oh, they will never break this game. Because you've got that experience, you can see where things are going to, where your potential pressure points are. That is definitely part of it. And, and that is one thing that... Uh, that is one thing I, I tell aspiring designers, even at conventions and shows and things like that, when people ask me for advice, you know, because 
there's a lot of universities out there now that offer courses in game design and things like that. And, and a lot of those are great. And, and, but a lot of those also are catering more towards the video game side of things, which is it, from my experience, more mathematical based and scientific yep. as opposed to board games and tabletop games. And, and I, I, I tell people that I, you know, while there is a method of science and, and a, a portion of science and math and and all this that lends to to board games and tabletop games experience is is huge right it there's there's an an element of art to it which is which means that there are times where it's experience over science right and, and over a formulaic plan um, and sometimes the only way to, to get to that point is to just go through it and have that experience. Like, um, like when I went and started working in mass, when I started working in designing games for a mass market, it blew my mind how different they were. Right. Um, I was, I was brought into a company. They were doing a game for, for the fourth pirates of the Caribbean movie, which I was like, great, cool. Awesome. Um, they wanted it to be something, more strategic than they were qualified. They felt they were qualified to design and that's why they brought me on. And so I put together my first design, right? And they were like, Oh no, it needs to be more simple, more simple, more simple. I was like, okay, give me another week. Give me a week. I'll fix it. I'll tweak it. So I went, I tweaked it, got a, got a huge meeting together, put together what I felt was the absolute dead simplest game I could come up with. Dead simplest, right? And within five minutes of explaining it to them, because I could see it on their faces, I, I've lost every single one of you, haven't I? And they're like, <laughs> yes. And I was like, okay, wow. Because I legitimately felt, legitimately felt I had created the simplest game I knew how to at that time. And... It was only after, even with my years of experience with War Machine and Hordes, right? So it was it was only by going through those experiences and having those realizations that I was actually able to grow as a designer and learn the things I needed to learn. Because people were already telling me, no, it needs to be this, it needs to be that, it needs to be this. But I, I, I didn't know how to get there until I actually went through it, right? And... That's that's where I go back to, you know, sometimes you have to experience those things as opposed to just learning them or being taught or, or someone trying to teach them to you. There are certain things you just have to learn. You can't be taught because it's just it, not everything translates that way. And so, yes, uh, some of it is skill as a designer and some of it is being able to, you know, call back to similar experiences and whatnot. Um, and some of it is also partially being a brain of someone that that will break things that will put together the absolute craziest combinations and look to break things because um, do you have play do you have play testers that you use that you know this is the guy that breaks stuff oh yes 100 percent. yeah i i have a i there are specific people i know that 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 have very specific jobs on my play test team and um, they might not know what their specific <laughs> job is or, or what they excel at, but there are certain guys that I know, okay, if I want 
if I want to get the maximum information on X, I'm going to, I'm going to give this to, uh, you know, to this person over here because that's what they do, right? They, they put together the absolute most broken combination they can for the, for the, okay, what's the biggest single punch I can deliver at one time, right? And if that's what I want to figure out, what, what that com, what that broken combination is going to be, I'm going to give, I'm going to put X in charge of it, right? Um, so yeah, there are certain playtesters that excel at particular things and that's just, that's just natural, right? People have different personalities. Some people are going to play a game to, uh, enjoy the theme of it, right? They're going to build uh, an army or a warband that is more in line with the story and the theme and what they like and enjoy. And there's going to be the other guy that just puts together what they believe is the most broken combination possible. Um, and so it's, in my mind, it's imperative and always has been to have a diverse group of testers like that because that's what the real world is going to be like, right? You're not going to necessarily have a group where everybody has the same personalities and like, oh yeah, everybody's just playing for fun tonight. Mm, the odds of that happening. Like, <laughs> yeah, but right? you, if you if you're play, if your groups of um, gaming buddies are anything like mine, then you get that you have the people that go, oh yeah, I'm just playing for fun, and yeah, I just threw this together with two minutes of preparation. It's still the most uber broken thing you've ever seen. Oh yeah, yeah, oh well, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Every group has a, every group has those, even if they don't want to admit it. 100%. 100%. So yeah, it's, um, and, and testing is actually one of the, testing is, it's a lot of work. Um, but it's one of the, it's one of the greatest things ever. Like, I, in particular, when I was, when I was designing games for mass market, a lot of the games I was designing were for younger children. Right. And, it was actually an amazing experience to be able to test with with young children because they had absolutely no investment in any of the decisions or any of the feedback they gave, <laughs> right? They were just 100%. Do you like the game? No. Uh, okay. Uh, can you tell me what you why you didn't like it? I just don't like it, right? And it's it's one of those like where adults they might be some adults have a problem saying that, right? Because they're like, oh, I don't want to hurt your feelings because I know you've been working on this, and others just don't, you know, just won't necessarily want to to create that because they're worried about a conflict. Whereas kids will just give it to you straight, which is great. Um, and also, you you learn a lot about reading body language when you're testing with children because some children are very shy to talk to a stranger. And so you have to start picking up on these subtle keys and clues and whatnot. And those are all things that I've, you know, I've taken and I use today where even my adult testers, when I, when typically what happens with a test is I'm usually observing. I'm normally not part of the test. Um, I, I try to give everything that is needed beforehand. I give them a, an explanation of what I'm looking for or what we're trying to do. And then I pretty much step back from the table and I let them go. And I usually let them go unless they like to the point until they've hit some point that they can't get past. Right. I'll even let them, like if they if they get into a conflict with how something should be resolved, I will typically let them resolve it because I'm interested to see what they think and see how they would resolve it. 
unless they've come to a point where they just can't, like a roadblock, then I'll step in. But while I'm sitting, you know, while I'm back there, I'm, I'm watching their body language. I'm listening to every single like conversation they're having, even the table talk, the whispers, all of it, because every single part of it is good information. So I'm sorry, I got off on a little bit of a tangent. No, I, I found that absolutely fascinating. Um, I've never, I've, I've been involved in a lot as of being a play tester, but it's always been remote. Your gaming group, you're feeding the information back to the designers, and the designers may or may not take it on board, depending on mm-hmm. their personal preference and whether they had their porridge that morning. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, I mean that what you're describing is far closer to how when I worked in the computing industry, how we would do mm-hmm. beta testing and you know ui testing and things like that is you would have your groups and you would just observe and you would just watch them use it and even when they were clicking on a button you're going no you don't click on that one you had to stand yep. back and not do yep. it yeah and and uh we utilize uh i utilize and, and s7 utilizes both ways so we, we we do have remote testing groups also but um but there is something about being in the room and being able to observe groups also. And that, and that comes from, um, you know, just the experience uh, over the years and whatnot uh, of, of being able to actually watch and observe and whatnot. Um, because there are a lot of things. And, and this was, you know, again, kind of going back to my mass market days. We, we used to have an observation room so I could actually step out of the room and, and let the kids just play the game totally without a stranger in the room because people act particularly kids will act different, right? If the stranger's in the room. Um, and I, and I found the, the value of that was immeasurable. And so that's one of the reasons that I have carried that forward. And I try to try to do that with everything possible is get live tests that I can just kind of step back from observe and watch because I know the benefit. I've seen the benefit of it. So, so um, how long? So how long have you been working on Conan for? Uh, let's see. Um, I took over. We, we we Conan's been in the work for a while now. Um, trying to remember exactly when we started because I had a bunch of other things going on at the same time, so I can't recall. Yeah. But we've been we've been working on story, artwork, and details for it even before we actually started the design, and it's been it's been. It's been quite a while, actually, um, you know, to get the deal in place and everything and to kind of come up with the justification for the story was was part of our, our first initial plan. And, OK, what, how are we going to put all, everything together here with all the characters we want and whatnot? Um, it's been it's it's had to be at least a year or so, maybe more. It's, it's been it's been a while. And so. From your point, we obviously we talked before we started recording. And um, mm-hmm. from your so from your point of view, is the game done or is it get? Is it you know is it an alpha or a beta? I mean, when that when people back it on the Kickstarter, what mm-hmm. what sort of level are they they pledging in at? Is it because it's obviously right. not just a pie in the sky? I'm waving my arms. I always do this when I talk to people. I wave my arms and no one can see me. Um, it's yeah. not a pie in the sky. It's not a pie in the sky idea. I mean, you, you've got a, right. you've got a game system. You've got you've got miniatures. You've got mm-hmm. masses of art. 
Right. Yeah. Um, we're not we're not asking anybody to just back a, a an idea or a concept. We actually ha- like you say, we actually have a game. We have a system. We have miniatures already in the works and everything. Um, I would say, and, and this is partially because I personally don't like to call anything done. Right. Until I've been, until I've heard it's shipped from a factory. <laughs> That's just me. Uh, it's just the way I've always been. Um, people used to joke with me. They're like, Oh, we're so, we're done. And I'm like, why are we done? Oh, we shipped the files off to the printer. I'm like, That's not done. Like, what are you talking about? Like, until that stuff's on the boat, I don't call it done. It's like, mm-hmm, no, because when, even at the printer, they might call and be like, oh, hey, we have to change this or do this. No, it's not done until it's on that boat. That's just me. Um, so with that in mind, I, I would probably say Alpha is a good place to kind of peg us right now, partially because I just there's just so much testing that I want to do and that will be done for combinations to make sure that we deliver the best possible play experience for Conan and for everybody that that um, is intrigued by the, the idea of, of a Conan Arena kind of combat game. Yeah. Um, I, I want people to have a, a great time playing this game. And so that, to me, means, you know, I want to test it until everybody on my team is completely sick of it. And not in a bad way, but just like they should be telling me it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, <laughs> right, at that point. Um, and then obviously we'll have a beta test phase, uh, and we're, we're in discussions potentially about opening up that phase to was, some of the public potentially. I was going to ask whether, that's a, whether that was going to be a backer-type thing, you know, get access to a... Yeah, we are talking about that right now, um, and I believe that's I believe that's one of the directions that's definitely in the discussion. I think that's probably where we're gonna, where we're going to end up going is that backers uh, once we hit the beta test phase, that backers will be given a, a beta test, basically set of rules and everything, so that they can they can go through it and make sure it's something that they still enjoy or that they like and uh, even potentially give feedback to us. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this right now for everybody listening. If, if you are a beta tester, if you are a backer, if this does happen and you do send feedback in, please know I will be reading all the feedback, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your feedback is going to be incorporated or that you're going to be able to change the game. <laughs> okay? My feedback, Roth. I understand, Mike. I understand, and I love I love your feedback, and I love the the intensity that some people give when they play test and whatnot. But there are certain factors that um, play testers don't all they don't get the full picture, unfortunately. Yeah. Right, and so it can be really difficult sometimes to to um, it can be difficult even from my perspective to basically have to tell someone, okay, well. That's great feedback, but we're not changing it, right? Because uh, it puts me in a weird position, also. Uh, but every piece of feedback will be will be looked at, will be will be taken under advisement. And if we find some great ideas, or if there's something out there that's that is 100% broken or needs to change, we will definitely be doing that. Um, um, I'm, I'm not one of those designers who is I know best, and that's it. Uh, that's that's not me. That's that's never been my like approach to to design. So, um, right. So, uh, we should point out to listeners um, that Rob 
and the team are still working out pledge levels and yeah things which is why we haven't gone well what are you what are what are you trying to get rob because they're still working out i mean there's 12 days to go as we record yeah there are 12 days to go (laughs) and um part of the reason i can't give that answer is because i am fully immersed in the development end right now and so i'm i'm leaving the pledge levels and the the funding goal and all of that to the the rest of the team to make that make that call basically uh and and that's just a decision that we've we've made to ensure that i can stay immersed in the development and design side of things um and not be distracted by by the other things and and not to worry we have very experienced and very great people working on that side of it as well so no one should be worried about about that or anything. They'll they'll come up with some great stuff, I'm sure, yeah. and some great pledge levels for to to make people happy. Because at the end of the day, we want to deliver an amazing product that people are going to enjoy and that that everybody's going to want and and uh, and feel uh, was well worth their them backing. So 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 this is a question that you might not that you might not know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of you know the hierarchy of S seven etc., why Kickstarter rather than say you know alternate funding sources and go the more traditional route? Is it because you're finding like majority of people that it has to be Kickstarter or, or you're effectively just sitting with dead stock? Um, I I can't answer that for S seven in particular. I can answer it from my own opinion. That's, that uh, seems good. That seems perfectly fair. Okay. Um, personally, when it comes to and this is and this is drawing on my experience in, in, in the industry and whatnot. Uh, when you're uh, when you're a company that's still getting started, uh, which S7 is, right? We're we're still kind of getting our feet under us as as a company to get products out there. When you're a company that's starting up, when you when you take on something. Uh, as large as a miniatures game with a license, those those two terms right there, miniatures game and license, already incur major costs. Yep. <laughs> because you have the licensing fee, right? And then that you have to recoup. And then you also have uh, mold costs to produce plastic. And that's where the majority of those the costs come in. Yeah, well, the sculpting and molds and things like that. So those are already two very expensive um very expensive parts to the puzzle that you have to account for. Um, on top of which you then have Kickstarter is, is a great vehicle for exposure. And that is one thing that there's really not enough of for games. Even today with, with all the social media we have and with Kickstarter, it's getting better. But if, it wasn't for Kickstarter and some of these other things. There's a lot of games that would, you would never see in Barnes and Noble or in uh, large mass market stores because they're just not known, right? Um, and as games get more complex and people want more out of them, companies need to make sure that they're uh, that they're viable, right? Companies aren't necessarily turning huge profits on these games, but they need to make sure that they're not losing money when they make them. Right. Um, 
And so creating, utilizing Kickstarter just helps ensure that, basically. It's like, yeah, we might not make a ton of money on this, but this is a great idea. It's a game we want to bring to the, bring to the people and we think should be out there. Um, let's make sure that we're not going to lose money and lose the company by putting it out there, right? Which is a risk that people used to run yep. by by just creating a board game and selling it into specialty because, you know, and, and they got lucky and they were able to stay around or it didn't go well the first time around. And so now their company goes under and they their dream of being a designer all of a sudden is gone, you know? Um, and, and I think a lot of it is to, for us, Kickstarter is, um, is for the exposure, but it's also to ensure that we can put the, the game out there that we feel the Conan universe and the Robert E. Howard universe deserves. Um, as far as, the level of commitment uh, to miniatures, to art, to story, as well as everything else that goes into it, to the game. Um, designing a game and just putting it out on the shelf is is a lot different situation than it was, say, five years ago. So I don't know if that... I, I, I might not have actually answered your question. No, I, 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 think, I, think, I, I, think, I think... I think you did. So... I think you did, and, and it's the it, you're basically you're you're the industry is in that's the place the industry is in now. Yeah, it seems like it is a little bit. I mean, there are there are plenty of S seven products that we have in the works that we we have no plans to go to Kickstarter for. Um, like, for example, the a, a game we have releasing this summer, uh, War of the Three Kingdoms which is a card game. Um, it's it's based off of the Three Kingdoms era in ancient China. Um, it's also based off a, a card game from Japan called Sengokushi Tyson. Uh, it's actually a licensed product from Sega. Where that game is just going straight onto the onto the shelf um, because it can. It, it you know we we know that game will be fine. We don't need to kickstart it because it doesn't have miniatures and doesn't have all these other things going on. Yeah. So um, it's not like we're going to all S7 products are going to be on Kickstarter and that's it. That, that's not our plan. Uh, our plan is to utilize Kickstarter when when we feel it's needed for something that has additional, like a heavy additional cost, like a, a, a large miniatures game that we want to do with Conan, that kind of thing. So, but yeah, that is kind of, uh, it does kind of seem that the industry is, is moving that direction and it's almost a necessity for certain, uh, certain areas. So. Cool. Okay. Well, um, I think we've touched on everything. Um, miniatures game, your philosophy of games. I think we've had, <laughs> we've had we, I think we've had a really comprehensive, I mean, I certainly really, really enjoyed it. Um, I did as well. I mean, I, as as crazy as it is, I can. I I apologize if I took too much of your time, Mike. Honestly, because I I get lost sometimes when I start talking about design and development and the experiences I've had. Because again, I know how difficult some of those experiences can be to actually get and to go through. No, and I'm so sure. I've always been one of those people that if if I can pass along knowledge and share knowledge, uh, I'm more than happy to. 
um, because it can be very difficult. Like I, I find, I, I feel very fortunate. I've been able to, to have the experiences that I've had. And I know that there are people out there that wish they've been able to have those, um, but they, they haven't been able to get them. Yet. And so if there's some way that I can pass along some knowledge, uh, I, I can kind of get lost in doing that at times. No, it's been it's been absolutely brilliant, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure. Excellent, pleasure's um, been mine. So, uh, is there any other questions on Conan that I can answer? Or, I, or no, I think I honestly, I honestly think that you've covered it. I mean, you know, it's two it's two to four players. It's mm-hmm. you know, the Kickstarter's launching on the sixteenth. Got some amazing miniatures. Like yeah. there are some, there are some amazing miniatures for characters of the Robert E. Howard universe that I don't think have really ever been done justice. Um, and I swear, every time I see one of the new miniatures, uh, when the team shows me, I'm just like, oh my god, that's just awesome. And I'm a miniatures guy. I, like I said, I I played Warhammer and 40k forever, and I just love a good miniature, right? Um, so when I see them, um, I'm like, oh, yeah, that looks oh, great. That, so, okay, there's a, there's a question. Mm-hmm. Pop, well, there's two questions that popped in my head. Yeah, of course. One, are they approximately 28 to 32 millimeter models? Um, I believe we're going 32 sounds right. So I could use, I could use them in, you know, in, I have a nasty habit these days of buying, kick, of doing Kickstarters for the miniatures. <laughs> Oh yeah, and no, then I, using oh, them in I, other things. Nasty habit. If, if that's a nasty habit, then you and I both have the same one because n- I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah, you can totally use them with with other games and in other games. Uh, like I said, 32, I believe, is is our standard. Okay. And there are obviously going to be a few characters yeah. uh, and, and models that are a little bit larger and a little bit shorter as yeah. uh, for scale uh, to keep things in scale. But 32 is right about where we're shooting for, um, which I think is kind of, you know, where everything's been moving yeah, as far as I think so. industry standard for a human and whatnot. Now, obviously, going in is kind of big. Yeah. But, um, uh, and my other question is, can mm-hmm. I be Red Sonia? Okay, so the Red Sonia thing. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad you asked this question. I, I didn't think about that. This is, not, this is not a setup. <laughs> No, I know it's not a setup. Um, no, I, I'm legitimately saying I'm kind of glad you asked this question because Red Sonia, obviously, everybody, uh, you know, tends to associate Conan and Red Sonia together. What a lot of people don't know about Red Sonia is that there are actually two Red Sonias. Uh, there's the Red Sonia that Robert E. Howard created, Red Sonia of Rogatino. Yeah. And then there's the Red Sonia that Marvel created based off of two Robert E. Howard characters. The Marvel Red Sonia is based off of Red Sonia of Rogatino and Dark Agnes. And so when Marvel was doing the Conan comics and all this, they they were looking for, you know, obviously characters and ways to make things more interesting. And Marvel took inspiration from Howard's original Red Sonia and another character called Dark Agnes and basically combined those two characters to create their Red Sonia. And if you've ever noticed, the Marvel's Red Sonia is spelled differently than Howard's Red Sonia. I've, um, you know, I've never noticed that. Right. Most oh, people no, have to look Now I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> yeah, most people have never noticed it because the Marvel Red Sonia has just become so prevalent and in a lot of ways, it's it's what's kept that character in the public's eye. And so 
everybody kind of defaults to that being normal red Sonia now, which is actually, it might be the normal red Sonia, but it's not Robert E. Howard's red Sonia. Uh, you, we do have access to Robert E. Howard's red Sonia. We do have plans to put her in the game. Um, so you will be able to play that red Sonia. You will be able to play a red Sonia of Rogatino, but that will not be the Marvel's Red Sonia because Cabinet doesn't own the rights to that. Oh, Marvel wow. owns the rights to that Red Sonia. Oh wow! Because she was a Marvel creation. So, has were you a were you a Robert E. Howard geek before you started this project, or has this project turned you into one? Um, I would not say I'm, I was a Robert E. Howard geek beforehand. <laughs> Luckily, I do know plenty of Robert E. Howard geeks, so I've been <laughs> able to lean on them where I need. Um, but but the pro- the project obviously definitely definitely has has kind of instilled me with more geekdom and and more respect for the universe and whatnot. As because when I work on projects, I, I definitely get uh, heavily in in involved in them and uh, invested in them. So I'm definitely more a Robert E. Howard geek now than I was at the beginning, <laughs> for sure. Um, but it, it's it's all it's all a good thing. It's all for good reasons and whatnot. Um, but I, I do know some. Like one of my one of my good friends is a huge, huge, huge Robert E. Howard and Conan uh, geek, and just he knows pretty much everything off the top of his head. I can I can say a name and he can tell me where what what story he appeared in what what the motivations for the character were or you know if he was actually at odds with conan or somebody else or where he died like everything and it's just at a drop of a hat and i'm just like i'm definitely gonna drop the rods the rub the rob the red sonia story (laughs) in next time i'm with hanging out with my gaming group i'm gonna go did you know yeah, I mean it's it is one of those it is one of those interesting things. Like it's um, it's it's a very interesting situation because yeah, because we we don't have permission for the Marvel Red Sonia. We have permission for the real Red Sonia, and I call her the real Red Sonia because I'm working on Robert E. Howard, yeah. right? And so the real one to me is the one that goes in that universe. Um, it was the original inspiration. Um, and so that's why I call it the real Red Sonia, where I'm not trying to start a debate with anybody about which one's the real one or not. I'm just explaining why I consider it. Yes, it's okay. In the show notes, I will put your email so that all hate yeah. can be directed directly <laughs> yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah. So we can start the hashtag real Red Sonia. And just, yeah. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, awesome. Just what I need. So. Right. Yeah. Well, we, I've, we've been going for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about normal time for an, for an episode of this, so I think we'll call it there. Okay. Um, it's been great. an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Rob. Well, thank you, Mike. I, I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you as well. And uh, if you'd ever like to talk more again about oh, Conan, or you're, about you're on my list of design, games um, and friends now. <laughs> like, I mean, oh, you, you say that like it's a threat. Um, <laughs> But I take it as a compliment. But no, uh, you know, even if you, even if uh, it's just you know the design philosophy or or anything else, just you know, I'm more than happy to arrange time to talk and and do more of it. So uh, we, I'm going to take you up on that, that most definitely. But I will let you, I will let you get the game out first. <laughs> oh, okay, no problem, no problem. All right. Um, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs>
Um, until next time, I've been Mike, he's been Rob, and we'll speak to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can contact Fools Daily on Twitter, we're at Fools Underbar Daily, or via email, foolsdaily at outlook.com. <laughs>